uh, promise, promises to be a very uh, interesting and strong panel, which uh, uh, promises to, to open up a number of debates about uh, language, uh, uh, about language, how we think about language and internationalism. So without much ado, uh, I'm going to hand over to Heidi. Heidi is Assistant Professor in, of International History at the University of British Columbia. And she's published on a load of different things, but uh, one of her specialities concerns uh, this history of uh, international communication, media, standard setting, uh, which is what, what Heidi's going to talk about today. And of course, Heidi, to those of you who don't know, is the project manager for the United Nations History Project, which is a, a fantastic resource, if you don't know it already. And we can talk to Heidi about that later as well, perhaps. Uh, thank you for the plug. Uh, thank you for having me. I had the pleasure of being a visiting fellow with the Reluctant Internationalist for a month last year, and so much of what I'm doing with this project on health communications stemmed out of our discussions. It was a really enriching and fantastic experience, so it's bittersweet to see it all come to an end. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk about language in the sense of statistics and numbers, the ways in which uh, in the interwar period those involved in the League of Nations Health Organization believed that the standardization of numbers about disease would not only provide information, but there would also be a way to actually cure disease, to provide officials in various different countries with a way to deal with potential epidemics and to cut them off before they could even happen because these numbers would be comparable and provided by the clearinghouse of the League of Nations Health Organization. But of course, even within that, there will be problems about definitions. Numbers would hide racial hierarchies, assumptions about the origination of disease, the gender of the people who were creating these tables and these graphs, and disputes about whether these tables, graphs, numbers, and so on were the best way to represent diseases in the first place. So in the next 15 minutes, we're going to take a quick canter through a lot of rather boring looking tables and some slightly more interesting looking maps. I also promise you a picture of a dog in the middle, which I hope will liven up the mood. Okay, so let's begin by looking at some of the tables that will be sent into the League of Nations Health Organization, which collected from 74 different types of territories and cities and colonies. In the late 1920s, these tables were already fairly standard, but they had some significant differences. This was from Australia. This was one way of representing disease in 1928. Uh, another is from China. You maybe can't quite see it because it's a bit uh, faded here, but these are all actually not numbers, but just little pluses and minuses and circles, not numbers. And then one other version was from uh, Rio de Janeiro, where people were divided by their gender, but also by their age and where they came from. What the league would do with all of these different types of tables, which already are fairly standardized and have been standardized over the late 19th and early 20th century, was turn them into a form of compilation. Here, a weekly epidemiological record, which would have two columns, one in English, one in French. One of the later presentations will talk about language, but also compile all of this into these sorts of statistical tables. They would also compile it into various forms of representational graphs here to provide density, in this case, of yellow fever. So what I'm going to talk about today is to think about the ways in which uh, international communications technologies like telegraphy push towards these forms of standardization, both through the codes that were used to talk about disease and to disseminate knowledge of disease and through the telegram sheets that were actually dispersed by the League of Nations to push nations to become ever more standardized in the ways that they would report disease, the ways that they were forced to only report cases of disease or death, 
certain types of disease, and there wasn't really room for them to manoeuvre outside of that because of the ways in which telegraphic technology, the code created by the League of Nations, and the sheets that they delivered provided a template out of which nations could not stray if they wanted to supply this information to the League in a timely fashion that could then be put into that weekly epidemiological record. Room for resistance to this sort of uh, imposition of standards, if you will, could only occur in something like a letter that would have arrived so much later that it couldn't necessarily be put in something weekly, and even if it could be put in something monthly or something annual, would still be compressed into the League's format. And then I'm going to end just by talking about the problems of defining epidemics in the first place, even if you have all of the numbers. Okay, so the League of Nations Health Organization, you don't need to be able to read it, uh, because basically what I'm trying to tell you is the League of Nations Health Organization was an extremely active part of the League of Nations. It's often forgotten, but in the immediate post-war period, it was seen as the most active and most successful auxiliary organization of the League of Nations. It did various things like create national health infrastructures in Greece, in China, in Bolivia in the 1930s, medical interchanges. But the thing that this organization concentrated on most was the question of standardization. Lots of different types of standardization, ranging from the classification of diseases, classification of uh, vitamins and minerals, helping with classification of nutrition and calories, and also standardizing information about disease, purporting that the League of Nations Health Organization would function best as a clearinghouse of the sorts of information that states had long collected about disease. This here is a list of all of the different ways in which the League of Nations Health Organization engaged in what they called epidemiological intelligence services. Some of them weekly, some of them monthly, some of them annual. All of this was run from 1921 to 1939 by a man called Ludwig who was a Polish bacteriologist. Uh, I promised you a puppy. Here you go. <laughs> so Reichmann had become known to the British and the French, uh, particularly because of his work in dealing with a typhus epidemic in Eastern Europe that spread from 1917 to 1920. Reichmann had organized the response in Poland, and with very few funds, he had focused quite heavily on information and communication as a way to try and contain the outbreak of this typhus epidemic. So when he came to be appointed as the head of the League of Nations Health Organization, he saw information as a key way both to try and prevent epidemics from spreading, because then officials could know that something was potentially coming out, they could enact quarantine, they could do whatever they thought was best, but also he thought this information would be an argument for the existence of the League of Nations Health Organization. It could bring in even more funding because it showed why this organization mattered. His principal funder was actually uh, the Rockefeller Foundation based in the United States. And he argued to them that not only did you need to have the League of Nations in Geneva as a clearinghouse, in fact, because of the origins of disease, you really needed a bureau in East Asia. You needed one principally in a place like Singapore, a port city that was a hub. This, of course, was reliant on European conceptions of the origins of disease. And in the 19th century, cholera had been seen as, quote unquote, an Asiatic disease. So the organization of this Eastern Bureau funded by the Rockefeller Foundation that emerged in 1925-26 is structured around these Western assumptions that the dangerous origins of disease are coming from Asia and also from Africa. The Eastern Bureau quickly became a hub of communication about health. This was uh, based on new wireless technology, which could disseminate this news from one wireless tower to many different places. It relied on cooperation between different imperial regimes, between the British in Singapore, the French in Saigon, the Dutch in uh, the Dutch East Indies. And within a few years, as you can see, it spreads to cover a huge amount of the world. 
In order to do that, standardization was necessary because in order to get out a weekly epidemiological bulletin about all of the potential diseases here, the League of Nations had to decide what diseases to focus on and how to communicate about them. So they decided to focus on three diseases, uh, smallpox, cholera, and plague. Again, a very sort of European 19th century conception of the diseases that one had to prevent and one had to know about. They then decided that you needed to have some standardized codes. Telegraphy had always relied on various forms of codes since it had emerged in the mid-19th century. This was so that in order to send it over Morse code, instead of sending a whole long word, like let's say responsibility, you could just send the letters RE, and then that could be expanded elsewhere. It didn't take as much time going across the lines, and so it would save you money. There were all sorts of epidemiological codes that had developed within nations over the early 20th century. This is the example from the United States, so they would have these five letters that would expand out to be something you can see actually quite lengthy often. But Reichman decided that if the League of Nations was really going to be a clearinghouse for coded information, the League had to develop its own code and also develop one that was a bit shorter than five letters so that it could be sent even quicker. The shorter the number of letters, the faster it goes. So in 1927, he convenes a conference of a huge number of nations and health officials to develop what was called the League of Nations AA code. And this was specifically to be used for epidemiological information. So it relied on these two-letter combinations, which would be able to be sent out every week. So this encoded everything ranging from when the week ended, so week ends January 4th, January 11th, and so on and so forth. And that could be reset at the beginning of every year. So that's the top bit up here. It would tell you what disease it was referring to, where it was coming from, how many cases, and whether people died. But that was all that you could communicate with this code. You had a framework of reference. And this was the code that would be used. It would be used, though, on a particular type of telegram disposal sheet. And this was the expected methodology of delivering information back to the League, either in Singapore and Geneva, and it could then be compiled into weekly, monthly, and annual reports. This is one example of a sheet that's relatively unfilled, but here's one where you can see the code on the left-hand side with all of these two-letter codes and then being expanded. This tells you where it's been received, Singapore, Alexandria, or Paris, which are the three centers where this could be received and then sent on to Geneva. So if one wanted to send in information, all of the officials who are working in places like India, who are working in East Africa, have to force themselves into these kinds of decoded sheets. These were the methodologies and the codes that they had to talk about disease, unless they wanted to send accompanying letters. Where did the information come from? So starting in 1926, as you can see, this is a system that really focuses on port cities. Uh, Su Lin Lewis has written a great book that was published uh, just last year about the importance of port cities in places like Southeast Asia from, for the interwar period. And the health communications here delves into that as well. It buttresses that. But the port cities were, at least for health communications, not necessarily a place of vibrant exchange, but a place of potential danger and disease. And for empires like the British that focus so much on maritime trade, the ability to use health communications filtered through the league to prevent the spread of smallpox or cholera seemed like a very useful system. So port cities were both something vibrant, but also somewhere that spread disease. So the system is constructed around port cities, also communicating with ships that are coming into those port cities. And it spreads quite rapidly. It begins with 104 towns 
and by uh, the mid-1930s, it covers essentially two-thirds of the world. It excludes Latin America because the Latin Americans were concerned about imperial imposition from the League of Nations. They'd already experienced that from the Rockefeller Foundation, and they didn't want to have any more of it, although they still contributed information. They just didn't want to be part of this system. This system and the success of it even pushed the League of Nations to try and get countries to supply more information about disease. So Estonia is just one example where people from the League would write to a country and say, look, other countries are supplying great information about XYZ disease, please can you supply it too? And, and a certain number of countries are astonishingly compliant. So Estonia in this case starts to collect information from all of its 13 health insurance companies to be able to deliver to the League the number of people who get all sorts of diseases like flu and so on. Okay, so I've talked about the standardization of, of this system, but there were a number of problems that emerged from it. One was a pretty basic one, which is that the whole system was really designed to try and prevent epidemics, and yet the League was unable to ever define what an epidemic was. So even in 1938, the head of this Eastern Bureau in Singapore, C.L. Park, said, arbitrary standards, and he's talking about epidemics, are adopted in various countries and individual ports. And it is obvious that no single numerical standard could be applied universally. That is to say, the League knew it could provide information, but it was never able to dictate how various countries, ports, or officials would in fact react to it. So it was sort of illogical, circular nature to their idea that if we supply information, it could prevent disease and it could prevent epidemic, but you've never defined what an epidemic is, so it's impossible to actually show that you've had success because you can't know whether you've prevented epidemics or not if other people are deciding what an epidemic is. There were even problems with defining the statistics themselves, so let me just give you three examples. One complaint came from the British. The British said, we have great statistics. In fact, we have the best statistics. We are the most thorough at collecting statistics, and we have the best graphs. Now, the problem, the problem for the British was they complained that made them appear the most disease-ridden because they were the best at finding out where the diseases were. So they complained that this needed to at least be acknowledged that because they had the best statistical collection, they, in fact, uh, were the most disease-ridden. This was never enacted, but I think it's a fair point that, that the numbers concealed the methodologies of, of collection, the two-way dependencies on officials actually being truthful about how many cases of something there were, or officials deciding that, in fact, it was cholera and not something else. This continues to be a problem even up to today. So the newly elected uh, chief of the WHO, uh, Tedros from Ethiopia, has been very praised for the way in which he worked as a health minister, but he's also been criticized for covering up a cholera epidemic. And he says it wasn't cholera, it was in fact acute watery diarrhea, right? So this continues to be a dilemma even up to today, how we classify something which is then passed up to an international organization. The second complaint came from the Germans, who, as you can see, had very detailed statistics and statistical <laughs> tables. For the Germans, the statistics the League provided were fine in of themselves, but the problem was that they were synchronic. They only provided a weekly or annual snapshot of what was going on. They didn't tell you what had happened the year or the week before. So you couldn't really have a standard to measure what was going on. Was 20 cases of cholera good or bad? Well, if you'd had 200 the year before, it was good. If you'd had 10 the year before, it was bad. So the Germans wanted to have statistics like this, where you had much longer tables, and it took you through various years. They wanted diachronic statistics. But then what the League was doing at some points, they said, was not even statistics at all, because they didn't produce nice maps like this. And finally, officials from China complained that 
the way that numbers were presented actually didn't give you a sense of the spread of a disease, that these numbers are in fact not proportional. So for example, if you had a city of 200,000 people, 10 cases of cholera was much worse than if you had a city of a million people. So people from places like Shanghai argued that a lot of Asian cities were much bigger than other cities and that really these numbers should be presented proportionally rather than just as flat numbers because it would seem like there were many more problems in a place where the town is smaller than when it was greater. Okay, so I've, I've laid out all of these problems that emerged in the League of Nations Health Organization's statistical representations of disease. But in the 1930s, as the League more and more saw itself unable to resolve political problems, it doubled down on these sorts of what they called technical standards and proclaimed even more that standards about health and standards about nutrition were the sorts of things that the League could deliver. And in fact, in 1939, when the League of Nations decided to have a pavilion at the World's Fair in New York, these sorts of health statistics actually dominated a huge part of one of the displays. It's perhaps not coincidental that this pavilion did not attract a large number of visitors <laughs> who were not so interested in statistical representations of disease. But what's important is that it came to be a self-justification for the League itself. The League of Nations Health Organization is conceived of by Reichman in the early 1920s, a place that could be a clearinghouse of information, but someone ignored in the utopian visions of the League as a place to end war in the late 1920s, but his vision actually comes to dominate. It starts to be the language with which the League will describe itself in the late 1930s. And many of the people who worked for the League of Nations Health Organization saw these statistics as completely beyond politics. And they prided themselves on the fact that even after World War II broke out in Europe in 1939, this system continued to function in 1940 in Asia. And so in 1941, when the British decided they no longer wanted to participate because they were worried about these statistics being used by Germans and others, League officials are completely flawed. They just could not understand why somebody would withdraw from a system which, to them, only seems to be a method to prevent disease. They couldn't see how this could be instrumentalized for military purposes and how these statistics in and of themselves were political. And so during World War II, when there are very few officials left in Geneva, one of the few things that they actually keep going is this weekly epidemiological record. Uh, one of the, the other people, Yves Biraud, uh, spends all of his time producing a dictionary that is translating the names of diseases into 23 foreign languages and Latin. And it sounds absurd, but it's because his belief is that if we have classification of disease and we have standardization, if we can maintain this through the war, this will be a justification for a health organization afterwards. And it turns out that he's actually right. And one of the things that just continues unabated from 1926 all the way up until the present is this representation of epidemiology. So let me uh, illustrate briefly. Okay, this is the first weekly epidemiological record in 1926. You don't need to read it, you just need to look at what it looks like. Okay, table, numbers, two columns, English and French. When the League of Nations Health Organization is transferred over to the United Nations in 1945, September 1945, there's a small editorial which says here, we really don't have any time to rethink the format of this weekly epidemiological record. We're going to stick with what we have before. At a later date, we'll rethink it. So here it obviously looks the same. Uh, fast forward to today, and it still looks surprisingly similar. Two columns. This is English. Uh, this is French. Same sorts of numerical tables here to represent disease. And then finally, just to illustrate that even the graphs themselves look surprisingly similar. So this is talking about the plague in the 1920s, 
and this is from uh, 2015. Still the same sorts of representations of disease. Okay, let me end with three conclusions. The first is that these telegraphic codes, this international technology of communications, helps to standardize the experience of disease. It made disease seem comparable, it made it seem representable, it made it seem neutral. And yet at the same time, these codes and these telegram sheets, they encoded particular hierarchies of diseases and representations of illness. They even hid the people who were collecting the statistics. One of the people behind the scenes who's incredibly important is a British secretary, Ursula Harding, who is continually writing to all of these countries to collect their statistics. And of course, her role is completely erased. And finally, of course, this coded language could not encode standard definitions of concepts like epidemics. It also could not provide compelling narratives about the human nature of disease. And in fact, what we know from contemporary psychological research is if we want to get people to get themselves vaccinated or to prevent diseases, what we need to do is actually present not statistics like this, not probabilities which the human brain finds hard to comprehend, but narratives about individual people. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Heidi. Um, our next paper is going to be a, a double act by Humphrey Tonkin, who you already met yesterday. Uh, Humphrey is a professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania and visiting professor at Columbia University, right? Once upon a time. Once upon a time. Okay. <laughs> but like Heidi, uh, Humphrey's uh, interests, scholarly interests, uh, are very wide-ranging and, in fact, language and uh, language policy and translation is just one of uh, many uh, fields uh, that interest him. And the second uh, speaker of this uh, second paper is Lisa McEnty Atalanis, who is a senior lecturer here at Birkbeck in Applied Linguistics and Communication. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to know more about at some, at some point about how you two found each other, but maybe you should just give your papers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. yes. Okay. Good. Um, first, a disclaimer. We had an extensive um, discussion of gender politics <laughs> concerning what you do with a cooperative paper. Um, <laughs> is it legitimate to have the man read while the woman works the PowerPoint? <laughs> we concluded that the man would simply provide you with background information and then the woman would zap you with the real information at the end. So that's how we divided it. Georges Clemenceau's ascent to the use of English alongside French at the Versailles Peace Conference in 1919 changed everything. English entered the diplomatic arena. His president, Poincaré, with whom Clemenceau seldom agreed, was furious, no doubt feeling that the prime minister, as was his wont, was making too many concessions to the British and Americans. But Clemenceau, ever the cosmopolitan, spoke good English and was evidently proud of it. He felt comfortable allowing the use of English next to the default language of diplomacy, French. Foreign Minister Sonino, representing Italy, reluctantly went along, as did the Japanese. One of the first steps taken by the five was to establish a commission on the League of Nations to determine the form and purpose of this nascent international body. While other members won some representation, the creation of the League of Nations followed the pattern of the Peace Conference itself. The five superpowers, victors of World War I, dominated, and English continued to be used in parallel with French. The Covenant of January 1920, establishing the League, was silent on the matter of language, but in truth the issue was already decided. 
since the equal status of French and English had been established by the Peace Conference and the Treaty of Versailles saw the League as the natural continuation of that Peace Conference with its two languages. In truth, the worldwide competition of languages at the time of the League's founding put French, German, and English on a more or less equal footing. French was widely used in the dealings among states and in the French colonies. English was widely used in commerce and in the empire. German remained a primary language of science and medicine. But the defeat of Germany in the World War was rapidly diluting its influence, not least as American universities, often modeled on German institutions, were playing an ever greater role in scientific advancement. The only ripple on the surface of the League's language policy turned out to be Esperanto. The language was enjoying a marked revival following the war, not least in the early years of socialism in the Soviet Union, as we've discovered, and in leftist international organizations worldwide. Unable to resist the expansion of English, France unleashed much of its pent-up frustration on the hapless Esperantists, who, in calling for the simple consideration of Esperanto as a subject for schools, called down the wrath of French diplomats who hastened to sideline their proposal by sending it to the League's Commission for International Intellectual Collaboration, where it died a lingering death. <laughs> Continuing the pattern of the League, French and English were adopted as the working languages of the Secretariat when the United Nations was founded in 1945. But since 1919, four things had changed. First, the centrality of French in world affairs was slipping as the countries of Latin America became ever more active in international affairs and English increasingly challenged the status of French. Secondly, the British and American victory in the war strengthened their influence and that of their institutions across the world in business, the academy, and increasingly popular culture. Third, experiments in the use of simultaneous interpretation through electronic means begun in the ILO in the pre-war years and repeated at the Nuremberg trials, illustrated on the front of the, the leaflet about this, um, this um, conference, um, and repeated at the Nuremberg trials, opened up the possibility of expanding the use of multiple languages in debate. And fourth, a lesson learned in the failure of the League was that mere political debate changed little. The League was too turned in on itself, even if it did play a role in economic and social cooperation and also health cooperation. Um, the UN, on the other hand, profiting from the fleeting consensus of the immediate post-war years, saw itself as more interventionist, both in its international pledges to keep the peace and in its willingness to take the lead in international development. Whereas the League looked for simple consensus on language use and was able to settle for two languages, from the beginning it was recognized that the UN would move at least symbolically towards inclusion. It sought to accommodate the languages of the victors of World War II and also recognized that Spanish was the official language of more of the founding states than even English. Thus, Article 111 of the UN Charter states that, and I quote, the Chinese, French, Russian, English, and Spanish texts are equally authentic. As with the League, the implication was that these five languages would become the so-called usual languages of the UN. Though in practice, it understood that the administrative business of the UN could hardly be conducted in five languages and recognized French and English as the working languages of the Secretariat. 
It also recognized that providing interpretation in five languages at a time when the use of simultaneous interpretation was still a contested issue was problematic. So the General Assembly, at whose initial meeting in 1946 language practices were codified, made French and English working languages of the General Assembly while designating the other three as official languages, opening the way for the provision of translation services, if not interpretation. By 1948, Spanish was raised to the status of working language of the General Assembly, though not of the Secretariat. 20 years later, in 1968, Russian was promoted from official to working language status. And in 1973, under pressure from the Arab states, Arabic became an official language and Chinese a working language of the General Assembly. While further policy changes have been made since that time, essentially this is the decisions of 1973 defined the language regime permanently. Other languages have been proposed from time to time, notably Portuguese and Hindi-Urdu, but without success. In recent years, the UN's workload has increased and its budgets have declined. Scarcity of resources, coupled with increases in departments' mandates, has led to a euphemistic push for cost neutrality and for creative solutions to the problem of supporting multilingualism for political and public diplomacy. A culture of parsimony has prevailed in which English has become dominant over all other UN languages. Some member states have raised concerns about reductions in multilingual provision, particularly in public information and outreach work, and have emphasized the need for parity among the UN's languages system-wide. The result has been increasingly dense and lengthy resolutions on multilingualism. In other words, the use of a lot of words in order to say very little. <laughs> internal and external seminars and language days promoting multilingualism. And in 2008 and 2012, the appointment of a coordinator, a senior secretarial official, um, the Under Secretary General for Communications and Public Information, in addition to senior staff in other organizations, to address questions of multilingualism. Greatest momentum for the promotion of multilingualism occurred around the time of the publication of a joint inspection unit report um, in 2011. This identified the piecemeal and fragmented approach to multilingualism across the organization and the pervasive hegemony of English. Despite a series of 15 recommendations to legislative bodies and executive heads to redress the reported imbalance in the support and use of the organization's languages, little, if anything, has materially changed. Recent discussions with key UN personnel suggest the report and its recommendations have been largely, as they put it, put to bed. Fernand de Varenne distinguishes among three what he calls levels of language policies that can be at play with supranational organizations. One, languages to be used for deliberations of the supranational organization itself, Two, languages of work within the internal structures of the supernatural, supernatural, <laughs> supranational organization. And three, languages to be used in communications, exchanges with the organization's clientele or public. In carrying out the will of the General Assembly with respect to parity, successive secretaries general have wisely stressed not only parity among the organization's languages, but also multilingualism in the field thus addressing not only levels one and two in de Varenne's model, but also in some measure level three, 
Yet even bringing about parity between French and English in the Secretariat is difficult enough. Many diplomats appointed to posts in the missions of the member states in New York are chosen in part because of their competence in English. For UN staff members in New York, English is essential. While theoretically, UN staff members should also have competence in French, such competence is often described in position postings as desirable rather than essential. So justifying the use of French in the administration of the UN increasingly runs up against the incontrovertible internal efficiency of the use of English. Ignored in this arrangement is the undeniably unequal burden placed on particular member states by this bias. But given the selection process for the staff of the UN itself and its missions, the sense of bias is actually ameliorated by the prestige associated with the mastery of English. If English, with one important caveat to be addressed in a moment, serves the second of de Varenne's categories, it's less obviously an answer to the third. While English performs a major function as a language of dissemination of the UN message, on the web, in social media, in education, in print, and while it's supplemented by the other languages of the UN system, these are top-down functions. The UN disseminates its message to others. Lacking are the two-way exchanges included in de Varenne's definition. And this brings us to the nub of the problem. Which isn't me. <laughs> when in the late 1990s, I'm going to multitask as I'm female, I can do that. When in the late 1990s, the UN began formulating the Millennium Development Goals, or the MDGs, as I refer to them, for the years 2000 to 2015, the organization was building on over 50 years of engagement with the larger society through its extensive network of organizations, agencies, commissions, its peacekeeping and peace building missions, and numerous other outreach initiatives and activities. But the MGGs went a step further by engaging civil society more directly in the fulfillment of the new goals. Emboldened by their relative success, the member states moved past the MDGs to launch the Sustainable Development Goals, which you may have heard of, from 2015 to 2030, with the explicit recognition of the engagement of civil society in all aspects in fulfilling goals directed not at the material improvement of particular societies, but at the fulfillment of the potential of all social levels for the common good. Two messages prevailed in the rhetoric surrounding the launch of the SDGs. The first message stressed universality. The SDGs were aimed at and involved the participation of all levels of society. Thus, they required dialogue, not simply top-down and position of decisions arrived at centrally. The second message stressed inclusion. The SDGs should leave no one behind. Yet language and equity leaves many behind. Thus, the report on the world social situation in 2016, entitled Leaving No One Behind, the Imperative of Inclusive Development, define social inclusion as the process of improving the terms of participation in society for people who are disadvantaged on the basis of age, sex, disability, race, ethnicity, origin, religion, or economic or other status through enhanced opportunities, access to resources, voice, and respect for rights. The report points out that while they're not fully comprehensive, these attributes are the same as those addressed in Target 10.2 of the 2030 Agenda and that they are therefore those explicitly included by governments in the Sustainable Development Goals. Striking is the fact that the word language doesn't appear in that list, although you may have noticed a metaphorical reference to the voice, 
nor indeed anywhere at all in all the SDGs themselves. Yet of all sources of discrimination, language is surely among the most basic. If someone doesn't speak the right language, they can't gain access to education or employment. If they don't know how to express themselves in a language that's acceptable to power, their voice won't be heard. If they can't express their grievances and concerns, these grievances and concerns will not be listened to. Yet this fundamental attribute receives little attention. Oops, go back. In responding to an ever-increasing workload and reduced budgets, the actions proposed, for example, in the 2015 Resolution on Multilingualism entertain the continuation of linguistic persimony and the mainstreaming of digital media, a continuation of what some may see as a digital apartheid. The reality is that the organization promotes and takes advantage of the lower costs and efficiency afforded by reductions in multilingualism and the mainstreaming of digital media, an associated increase in the use of English. In other words, the top-down operational and participatory constraints experienced at organizational level one and two are simply transferred to three. Moreover, the increasing dominance of development experts trained in English-speaking institutions with access to English-dominant digital media, used to using English as their professional lingua franca, makes it all too easy to see linguistic diversity as an obstacle to be overcome by remedying the linguistic deficiencies of those unable to be heard by the powers that be rather than perceiving it as an opportunity for the powers that be to hear the voices of the more vulnerable. The linguistic diversity of the UN Secretariat and UN personnel in general can be seen as a handicap to be overcome or alternatively as an asset to be exploited. What's the value of the linguistic reserves present in the headquarters in New York, for example? And what's the cost in lost productivity, participation, and comprehension resulting from the fact that many in New York are working in a, in a language that isn't native to them? Answers to these questions could inform and perhaps modify the policy-making process. The same question can be asked with respect to the interface between the apparatus of the UN on the one hand and the general public, particularly the most vulnerable on the other. In promoting equality in language use and access to knowledge and resources, multilingualism must be prioritized, more specifically access to information in languages and via media accessible to key stakeholders within and outside of the organization. And that, of course, includes the dissemination um, and implementation monitoring of the uh, SDGs. We contend that the rich linguistic resources within the organization should be exploited and that a review and reform of the current system should be undertaken promoting alternative language regimes which function bottom-up, appealing to different and sometimes opposing priorities, such as budget, equality, democracy, changing demolinguistic um, constitution of personnel, group size, field contingencies, needs, and so on. These regimes should be sensitive to changing priorities and policy goals, and the fluid configuration and language choices of delegates and secretarial members. In engaging with stakeholders outside of the organization, it's pro proposed that a tri-sectorial network strategy targeting and involving public, private, and civil society is fundamental to long-term sustainability and necessary in order to engage the local population. Recent political events in several parts of the world have reminded the global elite that their assumptions about the world and communication within it have their deficiencies, indeed that they've contributed to a sense of alienation on a global scale. Political and social theory has suggested that there's an ever-increasing ever increasing divide between the spaces and places where world issues are raised, such as the UN, and where they're managed at the nation-state, regional, and local levels. 
The present capitalist global system, no less evident in the functioning of the UN, depends on a network of unequal interstate relationships where there's crisis of efficiency, equity, and legitimacy. The political elite and intergovernmental organizations directly influence national policy through their policies and loan conditions, and indeed even indirectly via information transfer, as you were talking about. The apparent silence of those who don't speak the languages of the powerful may be masking a far more volatile, not to say cacophonous disorder. If vulnerable populations are to be brought into the consensus, perhaps their voice should be heard on their terms rather than ours. So is the UN equipped to listen as well as to lead? Perhaps we've reached a point in the evolution of UN language policy in which communication itself should be reassessed from the bottom up, both internally and externally, rather than the top down, and in terms of interconnection and inclusion, rather than those of separation and exclusion. Unfortunately, Joe Laycock uh, has, has, wasn't feeling well, so we, we've only got three papers on this panel. And our third and final paper of the day, in fact, uh, will be given by Sebastian Gehring, who is currently a fellow in, and a tutor in modern history in Oxford, although I, I gather he's about to start a whole new life in London, uh, uh, at the University of London as well. And uh, Sebastian has been thinking about the Cold War in various uh, German, the Cold War in Germany in, in various forms, and I guess that's where this paper originated from. Thank you, and uh, thank you to the organisers uh, for putting together such a wonderful and thought-provoking uh, event. I'm very happy to be here, and I've already learned a lot. In May 1962, um, almost a year after German division had been cemented by the Berlin Wall. The West German ambassador in Colombo, Ceylon, today's Sri Lanka, cabled to Bonn. He reported that the contender for the next presidency of the General Assembly and official observer for Ceylon at the UN, uh, a man called Gunapala Malala Sekera, had attacked the West German legal interpretation of German division in statements to the press. Malala Sekera had recently been elected chairman of the 16-member committee of the United Nations for information from non-self-governing territories. In his capacity as UN diplomat, he suggested a de facto official acknowledgement of divided nations by the UN. He included the divided Germany and Berlin into his list of divided countries alongside South Vietnam and Laos. Malala Sekera endorsed the argument that only official UN recognition of all independent states and territories could lead to unification. The West German ambassador pointed to Malala Sekera's previous diplomatic uh, posts in Moscow, where he established relations between Ceylon and the PSC, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, as well as his, uh, his diplomatic stations in Warsaw, Budapest, and Bucharest. These close ties to, socialist bloc, uh, to the socialist bloc marked him as a supporter of the GDR's attempt to reach international recognition as a sovereign state quote, through the back door, unquote, at the UN. Malala Sekira's statement points, uh, pointed to a grave danger to West German understandings of national division during the 1960s. Ongoing decolonization of European empires put the recognition and, um, of a right of self-determination and sovereignty of former colonies at the core of UN debates. It was no coincidence that the an, a UN observer from the global south with close ties to socialist states, included the divided Germany and Berlin under Allied control into his list of non-represented territories. 
the East German government had uh, started to engage in anti-apartheid activism at home and through political statements to the international arena since around 1960. The GDR leadership discovered third world legal semantics of a right of self-determination, territorial integrity, and international recognition as a new political language to garner support among African and Asian states. This new type of legalist language should break West German dominance in describing German division in international organizations. In the uh, immediate post-war years, the evolving East German state had been deprived of legal experts. Almost all qualified and trained scholars of international and constitutional law found their post-war homes in the Western zones. Consequently, West German legal and political elites, aided by American dominance uh, of the UN and other international bodies in the immediate post-war period, shaped interpretations of Germany's post-war status in the international arena. Legal experts within the Bonn government worked together with leading law scholars such as Rudolf Laun, Adolf Arndt, and Ulrich Scheuner, and framed German national division in a legal language that neglected East German statehood altogether. This legal activism cut across partisan borders. For some, the re-establishment of the German Reich's territory took center stage. Others saw citizenship rights of Germans escaping from the East only secured if the Bonn government took on governmental responsibility for, quote unquote, all Germans. In the ministries of justice, interior, and the chancellery, legal expertise of former leading civil servants of the Third Reich solidified this political agenda with revanchist interpretations of the Federal Republic's new constitution. Their central argument stipulated that a unified legal sovereignty of the German Reich quote unquote, in its borders of 1937, <laughs> i.e. before Nazi territorial expansion began, had survived the unconditional surrender of May 1945. The foundation of a West German government and state was seen as a provisional reorganization of this German sovereignty of the Reich in the territory of the free Western occupation zones. In other words, the legal core understanding of the West German state rested on the assumption that German sovereignty was in fact not divided, but only obstructed by Soviet force through the continued occupation of their zone of occupation. The political semantics of national division were thus contradicted by the legal Cold War home front established by the young West German state. And already here, translation is actually quite creatively used um, when the West German uh, the, uh, parliamentary council sort of endorses this provisional basic law they're writing instead of a constitution to their own electorate to highlight that German division was not seen as, uh, as permanent. The, uh, the occupation powers, obviously, in the Western zones immediately intervene, and then the Germans say, no, 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 it's just a translation error. Obviously, what we meant is a constitutional basic law, and in your understanding, that's basically a constitution. So don't worry what we tell our electorate uh, back home. Um, the West German ag agenda of enshrining a continued existence of unified German sovereignty matched legal understandings of legal scholars of international law of the period. The UN was set up around the basic principle of one nation, one seat, linking nationality to the international representation of sovereignty. The West Germans profited from shared interests with the Republic of China's government. Chiang Kai-shek's exile regime on Taiwan, now a member of the Security Council, worked hard to bend the People's Republic under Mao from any international recognition. With backing uh, of the US, the Bonn government therefore received official UN observer status already in 1952, while the GDR remained barred from any international recognition and access to UN organizations. During the 1950s, the East German government attempted to compete for the legitimate representation of this set 
undivided German sovereignty. Yet SED leaders soon realized that this was a lost cause. Weakened by the uprising against the regime in 1953, the East Berlin leadership moved to a new legal language and semantics of national division. This remained a clandestine project until the building of the Berlin Wall in 1961. The East Germans' biggest problem remained how they would garner support for their legal vision of a divided country outside of the socialist bloc. Only by rallying enough international support behind a socialist interpretation of national uh, division, East German foreign policy expert determined the West German position on German sovereignty could be effectively attacked. At the turn to the 1960s, conflicts surrounding decolonization suddenly seemed to present the SED with an answer. The only coalition that was able to defeat the Western camp within the UN was a socialist alliance with countries from the third world, or what we would now call the global south. Yet the SED first had to adjust their legal language to be able to even connect with African and Asian uh, activists and rally them behind the East German quest for international recognition of any sort of GDR uh, of a GDR right of self-determination. Anti-racial discrimination activism and anti-apartheid campaigns would provide the link between the conflict over German sovereignty and decolonizing countries. It was in this context that Malala Sekera intervened into German court with debates. The SED uh, regime fashioned the GDR as a non-represented territory and equated the East German situation with the position of decolonized yet not yet internationally represented and recognized uh, uh, states. This shift in legal language, however, went deeper than a mere shift in semantics. The SAD leadership ta uh, tasked its legal and foreign policy experts to design a comprehensive counter model to traditional German ideas of sovereignty rooted in their idea of the German nation. Ethnicity, or in the UN's terminology, nationality, had provided the legitimacy for claims to unify Germans in a nation state ever since uh, the mid uh, and early 19th century. The East Berlin regime now put the socialist citizen at the heart of its bid for international recognition. The legitimacy of the East German state lay in its anti-fascist, anti-racist nature um, of socialist society. Underpinned by a new East German citizenship law from 1967, which again uh, linguistically it sort of, uh, departs from uh, German understandings with the term uh, state citizen in English, not subject of the state, which is a traditional term for citizenship in German. Uh, the SAD embarked on a public discussion of a new constitution in 1968 in the tradition of Soviet rights talk. Citizenship rights and by extension, uh, extension socialist human rights were realized in this new constitutional order in the eyes of the regime. Since Malala Sikera's intervention in 1962, the West German government therefore had come under increasing pressure within the UN as well. Since the official application of by the GDR government for membership in 1966, votes in special organizations such as the WHO or UNESCO on the question of admitting the East German state had become closer and closer. By 68, the outgoing West German official observer to the UN, Sigismund von Braun, warned the Foreign Office that a single vote in favor of the GDR in one of the UN's special organizations would open the floodgates. Such a success could not be contained and would inevitably lead to the GDR's international recognition as a sovereign state. This would rob the Bonn government from all its political leverage in any future Ostpolitik negotiations. Von Braun's sounding of the alarm bell was not a sign of his personal or individual panic. 
Since the appointment of Secretary General Tunt in 1961, the UN had put the agenda of universal representation of states within the UN front and center. Tunt aimed at decolonized states in particular, but he quickly included so-called divided countries, uh, not divided states or divided nations, divided countries in UN terminology into his de uh, deliberations. The UN Charter pro uh, Charter's promise of universal legal standards, uh, another form of standardization, um, so these universal legal standards demanded that also so far internationally isolated states such as GDR should receive official recognition by the UN. Over the years, the UN's uh, political unit advocated this line very cautiously on behalf of Tant. By the late 1960s, this departure from standing UN procedure met resistance within the institution. The legal counsel to the Secretary General Konstantinos Stavropoulos opposed Tant's undermining of U UN procedural rules uh, on official observer status. He had repeatedly condemned the socialist bloc country's strategy to raise the GDR's UN profile by distributing East German policy documents on apartheid and anti-racial discrimination, uh, the anti-racial uh, discrimination convention during the 1960s. The Soviet Union and its allies had already managed to weaken procedural rules by circulating policy document, documents of a non-accredited uh, country. Stavropoulos feared chaos in the already highly politicized mechanisms of the UN as an institution if established protocol was not defended. Yet Tant continued his advocacy for the representation of divided countries. By 1970, he suddenly faced a new potent opponent. The question of Chinese UN membership was about to escalate. Since the early 60s, this issue of Chinese division had been made an official topic of discussion within the General Assembly. By 1970, the accession of third world countries to the UN had dramatically altered the voting balance within the UN. In a shocking vote uh, on 25th September of 1971, the Republic of China on Taiwan lost not only its seat in the Security Council, but all official UN representation. The US failed in a last desperate attempt to retain Taiwanese normal or basic UN membership. This sudden turn of events altered both Tan's agenda of universal representation and the German-German conflict over the international representation of German sovereignty. The legal concept of divided countries that have been deliberated by UN departments as a new form of le a, le a legal category uh, lost all backing overnight. The PSC insisted on a renewal and a very forceful renewal of the one China paradigm. West German diplomats and legal experts under tremendous pressure from the GDR and third world countries within the UN at the turn of, to the 1970s, gained the upper hand on the issue of German sovereignty, thanks to the Beijing government. Willy Brandt's two-state in one nation rhetoric thus remained a political recalibration of German-German diplomatic relations at the end of Ostpolitik negotiations in 1972. So it's not a movement from division to any sort of partition. So there's a marked difference how, for example, the Indian uh, partition is debated within UN from the outset that there's a completely different set of language because the umbrella term is partition of division. So the Germans are never moving to partition in any, in any sense, uh, thanks to uh, the Beijing government. West German high, co uh, high courts, chiefly the constitutional courts, in the meantime used the opportunity to reinforce the legal home front against the GDR once more at home. In a shocking verdict from 1973, the constitu uh, constitutional judges at Karlsruhe not just declared the Bonn government the only legitimate successor of the German Reich's statehood and sovereignty, but argued that West German sovereignty was actually identical to the German Reich's mm -hmm. sovereignty. 
Until 89, the West German judiciary remained bound to this radical legal opinion that prevented legal modernization in key areas of constitutional law, but also many other uh, areas of society, because we, you always come back to these very basic legal understandings. So to conclude, the German-German conflict over legal, legal semantics of national division formed part of a wider, of wider international shifts during the Cold War era. The confrontations over German sovereignty point to a fundamental shift in debates on what legitimate rule constituted uh, in UN debates, but also beyond UN debates in the post-war world. Socialist insistence on a right of self-determination of nations, since Lenin had brought up that question very forcefully already in 1914, and human rights language advocated by third world countries in a collective meaning rather than an individually based human rights understanding from the 1960s onwards, um, in, with the goal in mind to end any, so, uh, any form of racial discrimination of entire peoples in a colonial context, shifted debates in international organizations such as the UN after 1945. Sovereignty and the legitimacy of governments to claim international representation was no longer an uh, exclusive interstate matter as traditional international law experts had uh, determined in the second half of the 19th century. Rights guarantees to the individual became an integral part of how governments, but also legal experts, began to conceptualize the state in international affairs. The semantics of national division and conflicts between the West and East German government between 45 and 89 were therefore only one arena in which this wider shift of how sovereignty, the right of self-determination, and legitimate international representation were negotiated. Given the social and political function of law, this confrontation did not remain a battle for domination of Cold War political semantics, however. The longer German division lasted, the more the conflict over German sovereignty uh, shaped everyday realities of Germans crossing borders, impacted custody arrangements of children with a parent with former nationality, and immigration with, uh, into both German states. While the Cold War battle over semantics of national division had been, uh, has been overcome by German unification in 1990, the legal legacies of the German Cold War remain part of legal realities in the United Germany up until today. Thank you very much. Right, so we're at the end of a very long day. Uh, we do have uh, just over half an hour of discussion, but I'm, I'm going to try just to offer a few ideas. I won't go on for very long, but um, in some ways, I think these three papers actually blended very nicely. They're broadly uh, uh, speaking very much about, uh, about communication as broadly conceived as possible. So I think already in the previous one on gender, we moved away from, from language as, as, a, as a very narrow reading, and now we're talking about anything from cables to kind of the conceptual uh, 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 kind of tools for thinking about sovereignty and, and, and very le uh, legalistic frameworks. And so I think that's true for probably for all of you. And I, it would have been, I think Joe's paper would have fitted very well into that. So the first two papers in particular are very much about the day-to-day -day operation of international organizations um, in practice and the very central role of communication in that. I think particularly in Heidi's, although there was intriguing hints of it in, in Humphreys and uh, Lisa's paper, uh, uh, there's also uh, something about how technology enabled new forms of communication in these new arenas. It's interesting that both of you talked about kind of the outset, the beginnings of new international organizations when certain things are still in flux, are malleable in a way. 
and, and Heidi told that story primarily through technology and a new technology. Um, Sebastian's paper, and I think Joe's would have been as well, is really about the failure to find shared vocabulary and about uh, and failure to find shared forms of communication uh, between ideologically opposed parties. <clears throat> so just a, 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 there's two kind of broad areas of questions that occur to me about ways in which we might combine these stories. Um, the first one is about kind of this, this question of actors and agencies, uh, uh, actors and agency, and, and the question of causation really. Sebastian's paper in particular presents uh, the perspective of two divided states and this idea of the conceptualization of the state in this new international sh shared space. So I, I would like to ask Heidi in particular, but actually Humphrey and Lisa as well, where was the state in your story? Uh, and to a certain extent, Heidi, the, we've talked about this before at length, but the uh, League of Nations Health Organization is taking over functions from the state, it, 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 information collection. And to a certain extent, the way in which you told the story uh, uh, it, the, the UN was almost at odds with states. This kind of states are lobbying for, for, for their languages to be to be heard, to be incorporated in language policy. So th it seems to be an, an, an uneasy uh, relationship between states and the international organisations. Um, Heidi, also uh, a question: To what extent was this new technology ideologically loaded? We've, I, I'm not accusing you at all of, of technological determinism, but there is the question to what extent that the new technology kind of was driving or following developments. But uh, uh, the ideological context seems actually really important, even though it's not often written about for the League of Nations, I think. Um, Sebastian, from, from some, some angles, the, the story you tell appears as a rather sort of disembodied battle of ideas and ideological motives. So, Hooking on to Heidi's very ground and very material kind of uh, world of reports and of archive documents, um, uh, can you identify ways in which your story was actually shaped by very specific material economic divisions and imbalances? Um, I was actually particularly struck in your story by the question of cause and effect because, of course, it was the Federal Republic of Germany that refused to recognise the GDR as a legal, legitimate entity. The bonds. Uh, non-recognition policy was in place until the early 1970s and it stated very explicitly that the federal German government regarded as a hostile and unfriendly act if a third country was to recognize the GDR. So in a, in a way, the story you tell is a very, it, from the start, from the outset, was one of massive imbalances, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, it's, so cause and effect and the sequence of events is really quite important here, I think. Um, Second set of questions, just to open up a few, uh, concerns uh, the, pro the question of successes and failures, or of winners and losers, or actually outcomes much more generally. Um, I think all three papers have hinted at, some more explicitly than others, uh, uh, th this idea of uh, dangers of divisions and failures of communications as a problem. And I think many of your actors have this underlying assumption that shared communication is a desirable uh, ideal, it's positive, it's something to be worked towards, and linguistic diversity, for example, in the UN, Lisa, you said that, uh, is very much an obstacle to, to overcome. So this is, this is your, your actors, and I think you've, you've contextualized that uh, very, very well. But how does, for example, Sebastian, how does assessment change when we focus on the East and West German legal experts' own agendas, <laughs> as opposed to, they, they never at any point attempted a kind of unified uh, uh, communication. They had very specific, what did they want to achieve and what happens when we use those uh, uh, agendas as the yardsticks by which this communication gets judged? 
And Heidi and, um, to a certain extent, Humphrey and Lisa as well, uh, uh, your papers talk about how um, these new forms of communication enabled, opened new doors, enabled um, uh, 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 outcomes, and how the organizations themselves benefited uh, from another ways. You, you did, of course, talk about the limits of it, but I'd like to press you more on who lost out. <laughs> For example, uh, you mentioned in, in your abstract, actually, quite coincidentally, that Russian was only added as a UN working language in 1968. Of course, that sent very clear signals from the start of the UN about the Soviet Union's very marginal role in the United States. So thinking about who, who benefited from the kind of processes and stories you're telling and who didn't, who lost out, um, I think would, would be, a, uh, I'd, I'd love to hear more. It's a general question, actually, to the, to the room as well. But at this point, I think we'll collect a few questions. Uh, and we do have time, but I do realize that everyone is extremely tired. And there's, there's a drink, <laughs> several drinks, and a meal waiting for us at the end. So can we just um, collect a few questions, if you have any at this point? Simon? Simon? Um, I really enjoyed your paper, Heidi. I, I, I thought it raised a number of interesting questions. I have two quite simple questions. The first question is, um, it seems very much to me that this is one of those kind of projects, um, you know, a minor utopia way to collect all this data and we're going to stop stop disease from happening. Um, I'm wondering what languages the people who came up with this initiative actually used when they were talking about this initiative. You know, what sorts of ways they talked about it. The second question is about well, it kind of carries on from what Jessica was saying about the overlap the, the taking over of private information of state functions. I'm wondering to what extent these practices of data collection overlap with colonial knowledge production. Uh, okay, um Elodor, um, it's also directed to Heidi, sorry Heidi. Um, the, so I wanted to hear a little bit more. One of the conclusions was about how this new system of representation is, is kind of doing, um, representing kind of disease as neutral. So I wanted to I wanted to hear more about what what exactly you mean by that, and specifically um, in terms of the sources of disagreement with this form of representation. Um, so there's still an interwar period people that experts and many of them involved with the League of Nations as well that still think that disease like something like malaria, for instance social disease. Yeah. You cannot approach it technocratically. The numbers don't actually tell you anything because this is all about habits, people's ways, the way that people live, and particularly people in the Mediterranean. Um, and so is there is there a kind of resistance from these kinds of experts in addition to what's happening peripherally? At the, at the center, uh, there must be sort of people that are, that are just professionally opposed to this kind of representation. Uh, Dora, and then we can save that for the second round. Dora? Okay, um, uh, one question for Heidi and one for Humphrey and Lisa. Um, uh, so I, I look at the WHO as you know, and obviously there's a lot of this epidemic reporting going on, even when um, uh, from countries that are not part of the WHO. Um, so here it shows you know, how, how important it is and how invested in everybody is in this, and it makes sense because it's also a national security. Question, but what I see is that you, you talked about the erasure of you know the experience of an epidemic, the, the people and the, the people who are collecting, what it means, you know, what, what's 
all these problems that, that, uh, that sort of are flattened mm -hmm. out and these graphs and numbers and, and symbols. Um, but there are, uh, at least you know, in, the, in the 50s, um, there are these separate conversations of, well, this disease is really difficult to diagnose, you know, people are not reporting, they're not sending it in, how, how do we know that it's this? It's, you know, that there are these conversations going on how useless the, the statistics are or how problematic they are, teasing out all the, you know, who's collecting in the, in the international organization <coughs> itself. But then it's sort of not connected to the, to the, to the yeah. because then the statistics get used <coughs> as a basis for making um, decisions about policy. So I was wondering if you can see that working or if there's anything, um, uh, this is just, you know, it's a bit of a random thought, but I was wondering if there are also discussions about this on the side. Um, and, and for my families, if, if, if we you know, move, step out of the headquarters, um, this, uh, this language dominance that is so problematic and, and, and creates such an inequality, I was wondering uh, about the ways in which then, it, then um, these minor languages or obscure you know, countries are not, not seen as powerful you know, um, uh, uh, players um, are, are, are subverting the, the system. And, and, and you know, an example that comes to mind is, uh, and, and uh, uh, Sebastian's um, talk reminded me of it, um, the, the, in the EU, Hungary recently, um, often what they did, that there was a really problematic law that they made, and they sent the translation in, and it didn't really match the, the and they did that n a number of times. Like they, they tried again and again and again with this, you know, um, with this trick um, until um, it became obvious that it's all available on the internet, anybody can check it and call them out on it. But it's not, you know, that's not necessarily the way in the 20th century. And I'm wondering if, you know, if you're not, you know, if your language that not many people speak in the UN, what kind of tools that gives you, and, and vice versa, what, you know, your work is as an internationalist um, official, if you not only speak English, but you speak some, you know, language that, that, that people have, uh, uh, that not many people do, because you know, you, you, in the end, when you're practicing, you're putting these policies into practice, you need to engage with local um, structures, and then it does matter if you can actually you know, speak it and, um, and, and, and uh, interact. Right, I think we'll get a few answers because otherwise there's too much for you to um, address. But I know there's more questions and we do have a little bit of time. Um, Heidi, I think you All right, I'm going to try and fold a bunch of them together so I might not address them all individually. So the, the question of uh, technological ideology meshes in, I think, with, with the state quite nicely. So one, one way that I've tried to think about this is um, historians of technology distinguish, David Edgerton does, between innovation and use, how innovation arises from use, but one of the ways that I've tried to think about this is also that imagined uses of technology determine how that technology will develop. So in the case of things like telegraphy or wireless, which is a key to this system that I didn't have time to get into, but one of the reasons this, this can be enabled as a system is you finally have wireless technology, which is enabled as a one-to-many technology, where you can finally reach ships moving on the sea for the first time. That's one of the reasons why this League of Nations system is so successful. and wireless didn't have to develop as a one-to-many technology. That's because of state visions and international organizations' visions of what this technology is supposed to achieve. 
that utopian vision in the 1920s, which also feeds into spoken radio, then of course in the 1930s it becomes clear, oh, this technology can't you know, bring us all together, and in fact, people like Hitler can also use the radio. Uh, unsurprisingly, we found the same thing with the internet. So <laughs> the idea is that imagined use can determine the way that, that technology develops. Then, of course, there are different ways in which different states invest this technology and invest this League of Nations system with meaning. So for the British and the French, a lot of the ideas that I'm describing here, if you knew anything about uh, British and French imperial attitudes towards colonial health, sound extremely familiar, and there's a reason for that. It's because those experts really infuse a lot of what is happening, and Reichman, the Polish bacteriologist, is at the top, but a lot of the other people who are investing in the system, particularly in creating the stuff in Singapore, are British and French colonial officials, with a few people from Japan as well that Tomoko Akami has talked about. So certainly the British and French can, can push some of the state functions onto the League of Nations. It enables trade, so there's an economic rationale there as well. Uh, but there are some new things that happen, I think. The inter-imperial cooperation that I talked about that brings in places like the Dutch East Indies, where the British and the French have to rely on each other because of the fact that there's no wireless tower in Singapore, but there's a wireless tower in Saigon. I think it does introduce new ways of thinking about inter-imperial cooperation. But it also provides a space for other nations, particularly Germany, to try and uh, become part of the system because Germany has the strongest wireless tower in Europe just outside of Berlin now, and there isn't a wireless tower in Geneva that's controlled by the League of Nations until the late 1930s. So in fact, uh, Germany is the nation providing until 1939 the wireless tower that's sending out this material from Europe. So that sort of gets to Dora's question, which is this system from the very beginning includes non-League members, both in terms of funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, but also a bunch of countries participating that aren't in the League. They also continue to participate after they leave, so Japan and Germany continue to participate fundamentally. That, I think, translates into the WHO. Also, do people, whether people discuss the problems, yeah, they, they absolutely do in lots of different kinds of ways. Uh, the League of Nations is always frustrated that certain countries deliver statistics too late, so can, then you can't even make these synchronic comparisons. And then certain diseases they deliver on, other ones they don't, and yet, of course, all of that just gets flattened out in these statistics, which are then used along with the maps as justifications for, for gaining more funding and particular, particular ways of understanding disease. So this is a continual problem, I mean, even up to today, right? The, the experts understand the problems, but they still use it. I mean, it's a bit like impact factor. We all know it's a terrible metric, but we're still forced to use it, even as we continually reflect on it. Um, very quickly, uh, what languages did people use? Do you mean, actually, they used French and German when, uh, French and English? Okay. Mm, so, new technologies, new ideas for tech, uh, for utopias, what we can do with this new technology, so how are the people who are actually using this technology yeah, okay, so what are, I'll, I'll say two things about that. One is the thing that always strikes me is they never, never talk about the flu pandemic. And that I find really surprising because it's clear that it, inf it infects huh, a lot of their thinking because they just panic whenever there's some sort of potential flu. And they're, they're reading newspapers, trying to figure out if there's a flu anywhere, particularly in 1928, and yet they never talk about it. So there are interesting silences there. Um, another perhaps interesting way of thinking about this, is when you look at the people who are doing it, you have to tease out their utopian vision, because these are doctors who are talking about statistics 
instead of story. So I think of them a bit like the interwar engineers who have a utopian vision of how international engineering federations will be a methodology of engineering your way towards peace. And these doctors have, it, it will sort of come through occasionally that they have this very utopian vision, but they don't talk about it in grandiloquent terms. They talk about it in terms of getting comprehensive statistics, and then occasionally they talk about uh, what that means, but they don't tend to use a lot of flowery language as they talk about it. And then finally, um, yeah, there are absolutely disagreements about whether diseases are, are social or not, and I think part of that is why you end up with this weird 19th century classification of these three diseases, rather than talking about things like malaria, is I think part of the, the disagreement over which diseases should you bother measuring in the first place. And there are other discussions in standardization conferences about how you standardize disease, so I think those are the places where those discussions happen, and they get erased from these intelligence services which focus on the diseases they think are epidemic. Great. Um, Humphrey and Lisa, do you want to go next? Should I begin? It, it's so complex. So to, um, it's always complex to the UN because you're talking about the organization itself and also its outreach and field work. So I, I will try to um, sort of combine them. I'm, I'll address the um, technology uh, issue. And of course, my research is contemporary, so I, it will relate to that. And Humphrey might fill in on some historical background. This. As we, as we said in the paper, this push in particular for cost neutrality has meant that there has been a huge push within the UN for using online resources, also going towards a paper initiative um, uh, or removing a paper, removing paper altogether, which has meant within the organization that actually a number of delegations have been discriminated against because they don't have the technology to be able to access the information and data within the organization. So there's that side of it. Um, the other side is that in pushing out its message uh, and information, it's pushed towards the use of social media in a heavy, heavy way in recent times, to the point at which the um, information centers, there's 63 information centers across the world can pick up on this information, but then um, they don't all operate in the languages in which the information, now most of the information I have to say comes out in English, the majority of it actually comes out in English or French. Um, and so again, there's um, this huge discrimination. So technology has been an enabler for the organization, but it's also been a disabler and actually has taken away a lot of the, the rights and the um, contributions of delegates who previously could contribute. Also, I have to say that within working groups and correspondence groups, so the structure of the organization is such that as you may know, I'm sorry if I'm telling you something you already know, but you have the, the General Assembly and you have the various councils and committees and so on. But the real work gets done within working groups and correspondence groups. And again, for cost reduction, a lot of the <coughs> discussions and debates are taking place now over computers. So people aren't getting together at the UN or within organizations anymore. They're actually still in their home base and carrying out the work at a distance, which means that some members are being excluded from that discussion and conversation. It was also the case that minutes from these working groups and correspondence groups and reports from these correspondence and working groups were admitted in assembly. So the chair of those committees would talk to the assembly and, and report back on the work of the working groups and the correspondence groups. And that now, there's been a decision, certainly um, in some of the organizations, to stop that altogether and put in very brief notes, usually in English, not in other, not translated into, into other languages. And there was also an opportunity then within the plenary for any people who 
who couldn't contribute in those working correspondence groups to then contribute to the debate. And again, that means that people are no longer contributing. So um, I see technology in many ways as being a disabler, I would say, quite negatively, in terms of participation, uh, both in, in, internally within the organisation, but also externally, because uh, with, as I say, the push, especially for, with the SDGs, um, information is being sent out, as I say, in English, and it's not accessible to the majority of the world's population or people on the ground <coughs> who can access it and, and really work with it. Just one sort of general thing. Um, the question of, um, of who the actors are here, um, there are really three actors. There's, um, I don't know if you have, did you want to add anything to that? Just there's the staff and there's the organisation as a whole. And the staff is crucial in all of this. In carrying out the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs, in the period leading up to the year 2000, an effort was made to engage civil society. I think that that effort came from two places. It came from the states who wanted somehow to shift responsibility to somebody else. Um, and also from the staff out of a sense of frustration at the dominance of the individual delegations. With the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, the situation actually has now become more acute because while the MDGs were regarded as a kind of top-down process, um, they focused above all on developing parts of the world rather than industrialized parts of the world. The, the, the SDGs have been billed as affecting everybody. Um, so they are our affair as well as everybody else's affair. Under those circumstances, the, the question, of, the question of, of meaning actually suddenly becomes very important. We have a situation in the UN where, where we have universal monetization of output and failure to monetize understanding so that we tend to see language as an obstacle. If people would just speak the same language the way I do because I'm an international diplomat and I've learned English and I have lots of prestige as a result of learning English and so I can use English and to hell with all the rest of those languages. Um, we, have, we have that situation. Um, on the other hand, we have a whole collection of, of, of people whose voices allegedly the SDGs are supposed to listen to. Um, and they speak lots of different languages. So the question really is how one can, one can, can move from, from, a, from a deficit of output to a deficit of understanding, so that we can understand we can understand what we don't understand. Um, of course, the, the 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 member states actually don't really have much of an investment in the idea of using many languages um, for a whole assortment of reasons, some of which will be obvious, but one which may not be obvious is that they've been ignoring their minorities for years, and if they have to start paying attention to their minorities. God knows what those minorities will do. Um, so, so they actually, they actively resist the, the involvement of additional languages and the listening to those voices, which is supposedly a part of the process of the SDGs. Thank you. I, um, yes, the, the actual material realities of this, um, and this is, I mean, I focused on the language bit of the story because um, of the, the theme and the time I had. 
But in the book I finished last year, I, actually what, what is really interesting and where this comes to life is if you look at the, how is this playing out in, in, in the real world. And you already alluded to the, the Hallstein Doctrine, so this threat of we withdraw economic and diplomatic relations if you acknowledge the East Germans, which first, at the, uh, for the first time comes to head in, I think, in 1959 when Yugoslavia is uh, establishing um, relations with um, the East Germans and the Federal Republic withdraws um, <coughs> diplomatic, diplomatic relations. But then in the 60s, uh, and uh, Will Gray has written on this, uh, I mean, there's a real race in Africa for whose delegation gets to whoever dictator takes over power first and basically suggests we give you development aid, don't acknowledge the East Germans, or we are in international solidarity with you, don't acknowledge <coughs> the West Germans. Uh, so, established relations with us. So that's a diplomatic level. But I think the more interesting uh, level is of the everyday reality of diplomats from both states actually even <coughs> trying to get to New York. And that's one of the first imbalances. That the, the problem of the UN is that it sits in New York mostly. And all the important stuff happens in New York after 45. And you have to cross through the US to get to New York. And that's the, that's the, the essential problem for everyone who is not acknowledged by the UN officially, and the East Germans have that problem, they apply for visas, and what does the State Department or the City of New York, they just say, we don't give you a visa, so they, they, they physically can't get to the institution. So I think there's that level of material, uh, material realities which is really important to remember. So they, have st they start to send uh, journalists, with, uh, which are then to disguise diplomats, but they still have to invite people off the street coming out of the UN from different delegations. Do you want to have dinner with us or a couple of drinks? And then what? Well, get to talk about uh, stuff. Um, the other thing that uh, actually drives a lot of these really huge diplomatic problems is actually unintended consequences of changes in legislation by some bureaucrat, which the government can't foresee, but then play out in the application of it, or in or that Germans simply fall victim to accidents or something like that. I mean, there's a, there's a case in the early 60s, two East Germans travel to Cuba via. Uh, Canada, a plane goes down, they're rescued, uh, but unfortunately, obviously, in a Western country, so what does the West German embassy, they, they run to the, the, to the site and claim them as their citizens. <laughs> and then the East German government said, hang on, they're actually, I mean, they're our guys, you can't, you can't just go out and claim other people. So there's this great, um, there's this real uh, fundamental competition over people. And that's not just an, an east-west thing that the East Germans try to keep people from moving from, from um, east to west, but there's this conscious undermining of East German statehood and, and legitimacy by the West Germans early on, sort of based on that assumption that they represent German sovereignty, that whoever is German and comes over the border from the east or is in a third country and goes to a West German embassy is immediately treated as a West German citizen. So you get a passport, there's no application, there's nothing, you're, you're German. Uh, and those kinds of sort of unintended consequences uh, actually then trigger sometimes incredible amount of bureaucratic work and legal action. Same goes for um, children. Uh, there's a famous case relating to immigration. Italian father, German mother, child born in 44, still during the war, grows up in East Germany. The, uh, the East Germans uh, 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 change their citizenship law, so they become they, they become, uh, the child becomes a GDR citizen and then sort of tries to, and then moves to West Germany. The question is, is this person German or not? Uh, 
because the West Germans still have to go back to the 30s and actually to the citizenship law of 1913 because that's still de facto in, uh, uh, intact uh, and they have to uh, 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 comply to it. Father's nationality determines, determines the child's nationality. So they suddenly say, no, 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 you can't just come over the, the wall and live here and, and enjoy all pleasures of West German uh, society. In the 1980s, you're Italian. Go to the Italian embassy, pick up your passport. Per person goes to court, and so, so and, and then the question arises, and the, the driver of this is actually that, that bureaucrats in the Interior Ministry are worried that, especially people coming from Asia, from Vietnam, going to East Germany, becoming naturalized, Im uh, immigrate into uh, West Germany without uh, so making use of, of this 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 framework that is still uh, still there, and then you have a whole lot of. Buha uh, uh, in all kinds of ministries, and that sometimes even reaches then international conferences again. So normal people are actually more often than not triggering all these shifts I talked about on a on very broad um, intellectual uh, level. Uh, danger of failure of communication. Yeah, uh, yeah the West Germans certainly want co any communication to fail. Uh, there is no, there is no endorsement of we want to talk to these Germans, especially not at the UN. Um, and I think the UN as an institution has a real ongoing battle within. Uh, 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 within sort of the corridors of, of the New York um, uh, headquarters between the political unit and the legal council in the 60s. Because the, the 40s rationale is you need to be either, I mean, it's like, like opening a bank account in, the, in, the, in England. Uh, so you, either you're an official observer, you can submit something, or you're, you're a member state, you can submit something. But it's not clear how you get there once, if you're not immediately admitted to that status. Uh, and the, the question is, is twofold. On the one hand, it's about sort of states, and, um, but also about NGOs. So who's actually able and, and permitted to send an official document to the UN that immediately, by, def by internal regulations, reach reaches the General Assembly and is being debated as an international issue. And the, the lawyers obviously say, uh, we agreed on something that is stable. We don't want to move away from that. And the political union says, well, time moves on politics and society has moved on, we have to provide these people with real access to the institution. So, so again, I think there's, there's a, the mechanics of the, the operation is important. That brings me to the last point I wanted to make is once we move from language and terminology to the meaning behind it, I think then the whole story changes again because then the UN really falls apart as a universal uh, organization having, I mean, there's a universal terminology, but every delegation attaches a different meaning to core terms of what the UN is concerned about. Development, sovereignty, self-determination, um, uh, hum human rights, family, family. Uh, you name it. Uh, it's all sort of nationally and culturally coded mm -hmm. and that's all happening underneath the surface of an allegedly universal terminology they're talk of, talking in, in two languages. I, I think that's, that's extremely interesting, but I, I'm wondering, the, the, the corollary of that is that to set it up as a kind of competition is actually yeah. a complete fallacy. The fight was completely rigged from the start. The East Germans yes. couldn't even send their guys to the Yeah, UN. but the interesting so, thing is how it then becomes actually leveled, and then, well, then actually not the German framework is the important one, but right. that decolonization is happening, that there are new alliances within the UN which don't exist in the 40s, and that's why the, the, the East Germans are actually getting in the 70s. So that's not that. That's actually sort of there, there's a, ga a game playing going on from the West German side, basically bribing everyone else, saying we will admit them. We know we, everyone wants it, but let us conclude Ostpolitik first before you move within the UN. So they're, they're basically the clock is running out, 
and I think that's that's the that's the thing that, that the rigged game is actually shifting, and, and Germany has little to do with that. Yeah, good. Thank you. So we have time if there's appetite for one more quick round, very quick. We'll have quick answers and quick questions. Yes. Yes, I wanted to, to ask um, Humphrey and Lisa a question. I very much enjoyed your paper. It just seemed to me that with the SDGs, if they're going to, in any sense, look as if they're going to be implemented, then we have to look at other transnational organisations and the big NGOs, INGOs, a lot of them based in, in the UK or in the States. And, and um, what I think about the development industry at the moment is that it's suffering from a kind of narrative of disappointment and failure, that development hasn't worked, basically. And particularly in the UK, with a kind of what we call the Daily Mail speak, I mean, a, a, a very different, difficult context. But also, I think a narrative of kind of buried culpability that they're guilty as NGOs, North South, and they're trying to decentralise and regionalise. And I think that these are organisations, in, in our experience, which have occluded multilingualism themselves, um, both within their own organisations which is interesting, they're hugely multilingual organisations, most of these big NGOs, but also within their own development relationships and projects. And it seems to me, taking up what Heidi said, that a lot of this is to do with a question of evidence of what counts as knowledge for these NGOs, and, and what, counts for, what counts for authentic voices, and what counts for knowledge is largely, I think, to do with accountability and quantitative data. And I think if, if maybe there's a there. <coughs> Um, in these NGOs to make a link between language and power and therefore inclusion. And I think that if one is going to talk to these NGOs, you have to be very clear about who is being marginalised and what they can actually do about it. So I think that, as you said, these kind of, you know, general things, multilingualism is a great idea, possibly, but I think if one's going to influence these transnational, big transnational NGOs, you have to be very clear about what, what they sh why they should be doing it and what they should do about it. Next, next. Mine was more of a commentary about the contemporary situation and the kind of informal language practices that exist within organizations because the UN system is far from monolithic in terms of language practices. And I think one special case for, for different reasons that is different from the rest is, is obviously the ILO. And, um, and I think here there's a good case to be made for the agency of individual states as well because, for example, Portuguese has been introduced kind of through the back door in recent years. And um, we've actually interpretation at the most high level meetings funded by, well, there was kind of an agreement between Portugal and Brazil, but essentially funded by the Portuguese government, but to cater mainly to Brazilian delegates, and mainly members of the workers' delegation, who do not have that general profile of the diplomat who is multilingual and speaks English. So there are kind of beyond the, the official language policies, very often some fixes that are kind of introduced by the media rises. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. They're often anecdotal and they're not funded by the UN itself. They're ad hoc and the same in the field with information centres that, you know, that there are, I can't remember now, I've calculated it. However, there's something like more than 60 languages across the different information centres of the UN. But actually, when you look at the demographic, when you look at the, the geography of it, the majority are in Europe. And in Africa, there are two languages, even though it's the most, of course, densely populated multilingual nation. But that's because in Europe, they're funded and they have partnerships with media organizations, with um, all sorts of things that fund it. So, yeah, which is the argument really about this idea of having three sectors that have to be involved in some way, you know, civil society, public, private enterprises. But there has to be somebody that coordinates that 
endeavor in some way, I think, at the same time. Right. Can we have two more questions and you, you all get the last word. So uh, Jocelyn, and, <laughs> Jocelyn and Bridget are the last questions I've seen and then we can wrap up. Uh, quickly, and these are comments that I'm always usually now to formulate into questions. But um, for the first two papers, uh, I'm just interested in the, the trade-offs that are present. Um, so in Heidi, you know, I think we've talked a lot in the literature about the sort of imperialism of knowledge production that comes with things like organizations in the UN. On the other hand, um, things like CEDAW reporting mechanisms have been really useful to <coughs> grassroots NGOs. And so I'm just, I would be interested in hearing you reflect on that tension between those, the sort of hegemonic aspect of it, but that also creates a sort of infrastructure for um, sometimes more resistant behavior. Um, similarly, with the language <coughs> question, I, I'm always torn on this one because it obviously, the more languages, you know, if you, if you want to have everything available in, you know, Zapotec and Mapuche and Zulu or whatever, it's gonna, it raises the bar, barrier to entry in terms of the kind, not just how many meetings you can have, how many events you can have, but how many ideas get onto the table. Um, and the, in part because of really practical material cost reasons, but also just questions of time and um, ability. So I, I, again, I'm just sort of interested in hearing the two of you talk a bit about what those trade-offs are like. And then um, for Sebastian, just that there's a similar thing happening with NGOs. So, um, they, when they convert consultative status from ABC to the one, two, and loss, or whatever the current name, um, all of the, all, all, they all get kind of cleared out, right? And so when they come back in, the International Association, with the kind of Western women's wingos, right, all come in as category two, and the WIF comes in as a category one. And it's a, it's a point of real tension for several years. It's happening at precisely the same time. I mean, it just speaks to how Really transform the GA as in the 60s. Bridget, last question. My question is for Sebastian, um, and it has to do with something that you kind of threw in as a perhaps just a little fine detail, but that uh, roused my imagination. You said that you know in your discussion of this decolonizing world as a kind of locus of potential competition for the actual member states of the UN, that the USSR. Um, try to subvert the system by circulating UN documents among uh, non-member states. So this interests me for two reasons. One is that I am um, an anguished American in the age of Trump and his <laughs> helpmates, right? <laughs> but the other actually has to do with our conference, because it seems that a kind of recurring underlying theme or something that kind of emerges in each one of our, pa our panels is the potential um, for the subversive power of language and the subversive power of kind of having access or, or being denied access. So I'm just wondering, say the USSR, you know, kind of gives the gives the UN the middle finger per se by circulating these, these documents among non-member states. But does it actually produce any kind of potential for subversion or is it just a kind of symbolic act of of, of showing it to the UN? Forgive my <laughs> expression at the moment. Right. Okay, so we have Really quick, kind of final reflections on, on everything that's been thrown at you. Should we start with Heidi again? Sure. Yeah, trade-offs. I mean, I think there's <coughs> two aspects to this. Uh, one is that there are lots of things that these organizations do which are helpful, and yet we often focus on their failures, right? So I think there are there are trade-offs uh, trade there. The other is the, the trade-off between um, communication versus medical treatment, and this is a continual problem. So in the... 
in uh, talking about what happened with Ebola and the dissection afterwards, what Médecins Sans Frontières says is what we got wrong was we spent all this time trying to fundraise and get money for treatment. We should have been on the ground communicating with Ghanaians and Liberians about good hygiene practices and then fewer people would have died. So it actually wasn't about a lot of money. It was about focusing on communication rather than uh, treatment. So sometimes the, the trade-off is that you think communications has been fixed so you don't worry about it, but it turns out it's still an enormous problem. That's kind of a corollary to this belief in statistics. And the final thing I just want to say is I think some of the problems that the UN faces that, that Lisa and Humphrey talk about stem from the League of Nations period because the people that my stuff is aimed at are all official elites, right? Who And you assume that they understand numbers and they understand what's going on, they understand this language. And I, a lot of that translates into what I think the WHO does and a lot of other places. The assumption is we'll just top down, spread this information, everybody will understand it. There's this universalizing assumptions about science and numbers that continue to plague the UN up to today. Great. Hi, of course, the fact is that they did put up signs about washing your hands and things yeah. in Sierra Leone in English. <laughs> Not realizing that actually well, doesn't work. Right, which... And they put up signs rather than the yes, other methods. Yes, and, and, and my point actually is, is a fairly simple one. It doesn't have to do exactly with conventional notions of language parity. I think language parity in lots of ways is a red herring. Um, it's much more about awareness of language difference and the application of policy in ways that make linguistic sense. Um, I've just come off a conference in New York um, on language, the SDGs, and vulnerable populations. And what was interesting about the conference, I think, was that, that even the people at the conference, in many cases, sort of missed the notion that that one needs to put oneself in the position of a member of one of those vulnerable populations and then ask oneself some questions about language. Um, I find myself frequently in a UN context um, when, I, when I am through with being polite, um, <laughs> I find myself asking the question, not what languages do you speak, but what languages do you hear? And I think that's really important. For the most part, the languages of the world are not heard by the UN and its agencies. And until they are, we're not going to have coherent and sensible development policies. To respond to Hillary's point, I, I do agree with you, absolutely, about the NGOs. But also linked to what Humphrey was saying, NGOs themselves have an, an enormous amount of information. Um, and they're working on the ground often and the UN has to listen to, to them. So it's not, part of it is informing them, um, and I'm talking in the general here because every NGO is different. Um, part of it is informing them about, again, that language, as Humphrey once said at a conference actually, it's not part of the plumbing, it's, it's, it's fundamental, um, and how powerful it is and the importance of it. I think many NGOs know that, or people that, are, that work within them know that very well. Um, I think, again, it's going from the bottom up Talking upward, actually, is the issue. Thank you. Thank you for the comment about the NGOs. That's, that's a great reminder. Um, is it subversion or, uh, I mean, some symbolic politics? Um, it starts as the letter becomes the former. That would be my short answer. I mean, picking up on 
on Heidi's point about the legacies of the League, I, I think that's, that's often forgotten and the UN is seen as a newly founded institution with new rules, but because European empires continue to exist, actually a lot of the logics, including the institutional memory in the form of the first staffing of the UN, uh, binds pro presumably the 30s to the 60s period much closer together from the League to, to the UN uh, than in 45 to, let's say, 1989 uh, or, or, or 2000 uh, or in the, into the 2000s. So um, I think, yes, it's first and foremost, it, it is symbolic, uh, mostly symbolic, and you see that, I mean, in reverse, when the PSC is becoming a member state who writes irate letters to the UN, it's the American public. And you read letters and over letters over letters of saying, this is an American institution funded by my taxpayer money. How on earth could you let the Reds in? So, I mean, there, there's this reality, obviously, the Soviet Union has to grapple with. But at that point, the, the, the internal structure and power balance has shifted enough that you get from this point in the mid-late 60s that the Soviet Union basically pressures the legal department of saying, well, if we put our cover page on top of what the East Germans write, or whoever, and circulate it as a, what is called in, in UN speak, a note verbal, then that's fine. And I mean, that, that's actually not fine for the lawyers, but they, uh, because they have backing by tons, they bend the rules in these increments, and suddenly all sorts of people can actually submit stuff to the UN if you find a delegation that puts the cover sheet on top of it. And that's, that's mostly symbolic, but then over time um, uh, changes the situation uh, quite substantially and becomes a, a form of political subversion because, I mean, what happens, I think, in the 60s in particular is that you have these, these really incremental steps of how the institution fights, first and foremost an internal fight or about how it's, it's changing as a re result of decolonization, how the procedural rules on top of who becomes a new member are actually amended. So yeah, it, it's, a, it's a process, but it certainly has significance in the, in, the, in the long run. All right, thank you very much. I think it's time to thank our panel.